0: We're going to journey on to Genesis chapter 30. If you have a Bible, read along with me in Genesis chapter 30. You could turn there. We are more than halfway through the book of Genesis. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. And it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? (laughs) How many of you have picked up something new or learned something deeper through this study and kind of just sitting and parking on one chapter at a time and digging deep into each chapter? It's interesting because... um, The book of Genesis, and and the entire Bible for that that matter, it had like some really good points for like two chapters. And that was it. (laughs) And we see Genesis chapter 3, everything falls apart. But did God ordain that? Did God know that was going to happen? Of course. And it actually says in the book of Hebrews that the Messiah, Yeshua, was slain before the foundations of the earth. He knew that he would have to give his son to die for the sin of the world. And we, we get like three chapters in, and it's like, man... Everything is messed up. And then it's like we're given this little glimmer of hope, a messianic promise of this figure that's supposed to come on called the snake crusher. It says that your seed will crush the head of that nachash, that serpent, but he will bruise his heel. And we're not given any time frame as to when this person will come and crush the head of the serpent. But we are given this promise, this little glimmer of hope. And there's like little hints here and there. But it seems like the more humanity is growing in numbers, the more uh, immoral we are becoming over time. Yeah, there are moments and there are characters in the Bible that have this, um, this quick little uh, bump, this little, this little um, tick upwards in morality. And I would say uh, like Noah was one of those, even though the world around him was full of chaos and, and violence. Then Abraham was another one. But then after that, we, I mean, Isaac, kind of neutral to good. Jacob, oh, man, these guys, it's like the decisions that they are making time after time. It's like they are they're dragging themselves and their family through some deep stuff and some really heavy stuff. But it's interesting because we're getting now to the meat of this family that is going to begin to grow. And Jeremy talked a little bit about some of the people that were born um, last week when he taught. And we're going to end up seeing 12 children born out of a union that are going to end up being a big family. And that big family is going to be very dysfunctional. My dad used to say, we're like one big, happy, dysfunctional family. And that's what this family will be. And what's the name of that family? They will become called the nation of Israel. Israel. In this family, it's like, man, even up to the point where they're numbering in the millions it is still just wrought with disbelief and distrust and paranoia and dysfunction. I mean, if we could play like a a game, if everybody got a dollar for every time I said the word dysfunction the past six weeks, you'd be like millionaires, right? (laughs) But even up until the point of the promised land, getting into the promised land after slavery in Egypt, it's like all this mess and mess and mess. But guess what? That's the family that God chooses to bring about the restoration and redemption of all humanity, to bring about the savior of the world, to bring through this family and specifically the line of David from the line of Judah, who is the descendant of Jacob, the snake crusher that we're looking for. And that gives me hope because my family's not perfect. And I'm gonna go out on a really long limb here and say that your family's not perfect either. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, my family is. It's probably not. But there is hope in imperfection, just like the family of Israel. Through all this chaos and through all this dysfunction and backbiting and paranoia and manipulation and lying and stealing and everything else that we see here in the first 20, 30 chapters of Scripture, there is still hope. So let's let's do a quick review about the generations. Uh, I hope you guys can see this. Could someone turn the front lights off? Noah, would you turn the front lights off? Not the projector, but the front lights. Let's let's do a quick review of where we're at in the genealogy. We've got Abraham here. And Abraham is gonna end up having children with three different women at different times. Sarah being his wife, Hagar being Sarah's maidservant, an Egyptian maidservant, and then later after the death of Sarah, Keturah. And these are the children that come from those various wives. Now, we're going to follow, and Scripture follows the line of Sarah and the child of promise, as Paul later ends up calling Isaac, the child of promise. And Isaac ends up marrying Rebekah. Rebekah ends up having two sons. And you remember it says that they were warring within her. And she said, how can I go on living like this with these two two, uh, children warring within me? One was called Esau. He was hairy. He was completed when he came out. And the other one was Yaakov, the grasper of the heel. And we're going to primarily follow this line right here through Jacob. And we're going to, you know, Esau will come up from time to time. And his descendants will um, pop pop up every now and then. They become called the Edomites and other, other names. And they end up causing a lot of problems for the 12 tribes of Israel. But let's follow this right here. Jacob ends up having children with one, two, three, four women. He means to marry only Rachel, but he ends up getting, because of the seat of Laban, he gets Leah as well, when he really only loves Rachel. Well, Leah is very fertile. She can have children all day long, apparently. Rachel, not so much. And it begins this, um, this, this um, rivalry between these two sisters of envy and jealousy. And we're going to f- figure out how that plays out a little bit today. But not to spoil the story, but Rachel ends up having uh, some kids and Leah has some kids. Zilpah has some kids. Bilhah has some kids. And those are gonna, those kids are going to comprise what we call the 12, the 12 fathers or 12 tribes of Israel. And why are they called the 12 tribes of Israel and not the 12 tribes of Jacob? Because as we're going to see here in a few chapters... Jacob's name is going to change from Yaakov, Jacob, the grasper of the heel or the deceiver, to Yisrael, the one who strives or struggles with God. OK, and that's why we call them now the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's just a little quick review of the genealogy and some of the key players that we're working with today in, in our reading of Genesis chapter 30. So you guys ready to jump in at 30? Good. It says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing children for Yaakov, she envied her sister and said to Yaakov, give me children or I will die. Now envy is so powerful, isn't it? It's one of the things that we should attempt to avoid at all costs, but unfortunately, in this trapped in this flesh of ours, we struggle with that at times. We see something that someone else has, and we say, "I want that, or I need that. I will die. My life is not complete without that." In verse two, it says, "This kindled the af, the anger of uh, of Yaakov at Rachel, at Rachel." Now, af is the Hebrew word for nose, and it's also the word for anger because you know when you get angry, a lot of blood goes to your nose; it gets red. And that's a symbol of anger. When you see someone with a red nose, they're usually emotional in anger. But it says that it kindled his, his anger. Now, we haven't seen this really play out since Genesis chapter 4, verse 5. Turn with me there real quick. Genesis 4, 5. Genesis 4, 5. Noah, could I get you to turn, turn that fan off or turn it a different direction? It is blowing the pages of my Bible away. My binding has completely obliterated, and it's—they're wanting to blow off. Okay, Genesis four five. Where do we see anger come up? Genesis four five. It says that yeah, Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And then, what did he end up doing? He killed his brother. You see, it's a sibling—sorry, sibling rivalry—that produced this anger there as well. Turn with me, real quick, to Proverbs fourteen twenty-nine. Speaking of anger, Proverbs fourteen twenty-nine. Proverbs fourteen twenty-nine. says being slow to anger goes with great understanding being quick tempered makes folly even worse so if you're a person that is prone to anger i suggest you memorize that verse you know it's not sinful to be angry anger is not sinful but sinning in anger is god gets angry sometimes but Acting in that anger is sinful. If you're someone who's prone to anger, it's vital that you memorize that or, you know, tape that on your mirror, put it in your car somewhere. Because so often the enemy will use a God-given emotion that is anger to cause us to stumble or to sin. And what we do in our anger can be very destructive. We should be slow to anger, right? Verse 3, or he says in verse 2, am I in God's place? He's the one who is denying you children, Jacob says. And you've got to remember, in biblical thought, God holds the key to three things that man cannot change or affect. That is the grave, the sky for rain, and childbirth. God controls those, and no one else can change it. Verse three, she said, here is my maid, Bilha. go and sleep with her. Does this sound familiar? What does it remind you of? Abraham and Hagar. Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. Yeah. Did that end well? So do you think Jacob heard that story about his grandfather? Sure, he did. And do you think he knew all the problems that it caused? Sure, he did. You would think that a wise man, a godly man, just three generations removed from a guy who walked and talked with God, that is Abraham, he would know better. But it's interesting here how his primal desires and lusts for diversity and sexual counters is what's going to end up causing him to sleep with this maidservant. His wife doesn't really want this. His wife just wants children, and she's gonna force God's hand and say, okay, fine, I'm gonna have you sleep with my servant. And Jacob should know this is not going to end well. This is not going to fix the problem. This will further complicate the problem. But what does he do? She says, and let her have children that will be laid on my knees so that, I, that through her, I too can give birth to a child that would be laid on my knees. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I read that twice. And I can have a family. I can build a family. Verse 4. So she gave him Bilhah, her slave girl, as his wife. And Yaakov went in and slept with her. So Bilhah conceived and bore Yaakov a son. And Rachel said, God has judged in my favor. Indeed, he has heard me and given me a son. Is that true? No. But she's trying to fool herself, right? Therefore, she called him Don, or Dan. In other words, it means the judge or judged. Verse seven, Bilha, Rachel's slave girl, conceived again and bore Yaakov, a second son. And Rachel said, I have wrestled mightily with my sister in one and called him Naphtali, my wrestling. So it's interesting here that Rachel seems to have a degree of of, of gatekeeping responsibilities over the bed of, of her husband, Jacob. She seems to be the gatekeeper of the bedroom, doesn't she? It says, when Leah saw that she stopped having children, she took Zilpah, her slave girl, and gave her to Yaakov as his wife. Man, Jacob. You see how sin begets sin? You see how Jacob was like, well, you know, I had kids with uh, Rachel's slave girl. Nothing bad came of, came of it, right? I'll do this service for Leah. I'll do her a favor. So Zilpah, Leah's slave girl, bore Yaakov a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she named him good fortune or God in Hebrew. Verse 12, Zilpah, Leah's slave girl, bore Yaakov a second son. And Leah said, how happy I am, how asher I am. Women will say that I am asher. And she named him asher, which means happy. In verse 14, here's where things get a little bit uh, Jerry Springer-esque. If they weren't already. <laughs> During the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found these things called Dodai in Hebrew, Dodai, mandrakes, if you want to translate them to English. Dodai, it comes from the root, uh, you guys maybe have a ring on your finger that says, um, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Dodi, dod means beloved, to love, to cherish something. So these plants in Hebrew are called Dodai, which you could translate them more literally to uh, love plants. Love apples, as maybe some translations have in English, love apples. Mandrakes doesn't really make sense. There's a, a popular uh, book uh, series out there that involves a lot of witchcraft, and uh, they use mandrakes in these. These are not mandrakes from, from like that book series. These are like love apples, and they, they probably have not aphrodisiac qualities to them, but rather medicinal qualities to them. And these would have been highly sought after in, in the Middle Eastern world. Um, there, there are all kinds of plants out there that I actually picked some. No, I didn't bring any mandrakes. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but when I read this story for years, I read it as that she's taking these mandrakes and they have some kind of like magical qualities to them that are going to open up her womb and be able to make her have more children, or she's gonna be able to use them to cast a spell on Jacob or whatever. But I reread it this week many times and kind of looked at it differently, that she's looking at these dodai, these love apples, as a way of fixing what is wrong in her to be able to have children, And, and that's, you know, back before there was this thing called Big Pharma, that's what humans did. And I went around my yard this morning, and these are just three of the plants that I found. This is a loquat tree, and it's a little bit wilted because I, you know, ruined it. But this is a loquat tree, and and you can take these leaves, and you can boil the young leaves, and um, it can actually, uh, I have heard, reduce the symptoms of diabetes, of kidney disease, of high blood pressure and hypertension, a tea made out of loquat leaves. This is used a lot in in, um, oriental medicines and stuff. this can cure uh high blood pressure and high cholesterol um if taken enough and and that's just loquat. and then this is um sassafras and sassafras is has a lot of medicinal qualities if you make tea out of it as well um it can be used as an anti-inflammatory um a a mild uh anesthetic like if you have headaches or something like that making teas out of this can has a lot of medicinal qualities as well and then this is um this is American beautyberry, it's really wilted. And normally this would have like big purple flowers all over them. And there's a lot of medicinal qualities to American beautyberry. Um, for one, you know, it's actually a natural insect repellent. You can take and rub it on your skin and it would be used to keep insects away, ticks and mosquitoes, but it has a lot of other qualities as well. Then all over in my yard, we have these things called um, squaw berries, uh, which are, you know, they're like ground cover vines that grow all over my backyard. And, and you look close, there'll be little red uh, berries um, that are uh, edible and they're thought to to strengthen and and, and um, uh, bolster uteral health in women. Um, they're called squawberries, berries and, and maybe even reduce labor pains. But I don't know, I've never tried. But <laughs> you so may see, you may see a lot of people at your house you? Yeah, yeah. Those are all over the place. Yeah. So I wanna Yeah, I want to give Leah the benefit of the doubt here and Rachel, the benefit of the doubt that they saw these things and they saw the potential medicinal qualities of these mandrakes, of these love apples. Because she says here in verse 14, she says, so that I can be fertile. She's so desperate to have children and find her identity in having those children. And I think God is waiting for the perfect time for her to be able to find her identity in him. And not just be able to be identified just as someone who's had kids, but rather someone who is made in the image of God and someone who is loved despite whether or not they can have children. So she's kind of forcing his hand in this sense. And it says in verse 15, she answered, Isn't it enough that you have taken away my husband? Do you have to take my son's mandrakes too? Rachel said, Very well. In exchange for your son's mandrakes, sleep with him tonight. You see how she's the gatekeeper of the bedroom, right? She's saying, okay, Leah, it's your turn. You can have a turn with my husband. When Yaakov came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you, come sleep with me because I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. Yaakov was like, whoa, what's going on here? So Yaakov was like, no, I don't think that would bode well for the jealousy between you. I think that that's probably not good. It's not diplomatic. No, what does it say? So Yaakov slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Yaakov, a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my slave girl to my husband. And here we see yet again, Leah is having more children and Rachel is not. This is further exacerbating the envy and the jealousy that Rachel, I keep wanting to go to Rachel, Rachel has towards Leah. It did not fix it. It furthered the problem, didn't it? So she called him Yissachar or my hire, my reward. Verse 19 Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Yaakov. And Leah said, God has given me a wonderful gift. Now at last my husband will live with me. It's so sad, isn't it? That these women are trying to, to find identity and longing and, and belonging and acceptance from their husband through birthing children. And Leah says, God has given me my hire because I gave my slave girl to my husband. She called him Yissachar. Leah conceived. Oh, I already read this. She said, now my husband will live with me, in verse 20, because I've borne him six sons, and she named him Zebulun, which means live to live together. Verse 21, after this, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah, or which means, like, controversy. Verse 22, then God took note of Rachel. He heeded her prayer. And he made her fertile. She conceived and she had a son. Now this word conceived here, um, what what would see play out is a fulfillment. Turn turn back to Genesis 3.16 real quick with me. Genesis 3.16. This is right after the fall of humanity. And God finds out and he says, this is right after the Messianic promise. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And he says to the woman, God speaking, I will greatly increase your toil. Your, in Hebrew, itzav. itzav. Your, your controversy or your toil. In, there's that same word, harah, In your conception. Now, I know your translation probably has uh, childbirth but it's the Hebrew word harrah, which means conception. It's used all throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it's translated as to conceive. So it's saying what we see going on here back in Genesis 30 is a fulfillment of that, that your conceiving of children will be done in toil and in controversy. It's the same, the same phrase, if you go back to... Um, to, when he's speaking to Adam in, th- in Genesis three seventeen, it says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and said, ate from the tree, which I'm about to give uh, gave you the order. You are not to eat from it. The ground is cursed on your account and you will toil to eat from it as long as you live. So what God is saying to Eve here is not rather, I think it's a really bad translation to say, when you give, when you give birth to babies, it's gonna hurt a lot. But rather, the, the, the point of, and the matter of women's conception will be a point of controversy and a point of toil. A thing that tends to divide people. Do a fascinating, look on YouTube, there is an interview with Mike Wallace and a woman by the name, why did her name just slip my mind? Planned Parenthood founder, Margaret Sanger, from the 1960s, I think it is. Look up that interview. In the interview, she says some astonishing things. She is the founder of Planned Parenthood, which is the largest national abortion provider in the United States of America. She says, when it, Mike Wallace says, do you believe in sin? And Margaret Sanger says, I believe one of the most sinful things that someone can do is to, is to get pregnant and have children in less than ideal conditions. And she was, she was a, a, a staunch uh, eugenicist and racist. Um, it was well known that some of her po- programs were created to um, greatly reduce, if not completely eradicate the black race in the United States of America. Evil upon evil. That woman was a godless woman. You see where it says that your conception will be a point of turmoil. And even to this day, there's so much going on in the world right now about women's reproductive rights and can a woman terminate a pregnancy before it's born or all this other stuff. It's a it's a point of controversy and toil, isn't it? Even today in the 21st century. And it was back then as well. And it says here in verse uh, 22, let's keep going. She said, God has taken away my charaf, my source of taunting. God's taken it away. She called him Yosef, which means to add on to, saying, may Adonai Yosef to me another son. 25, after Rachel had given birth to Yosef, Yaakov said to Lavan, send me on my way so that I can return to my own place and to my own country and let me take my wives for whom I've served you and my children and let me go. You know that, you know well how faithfully I have served you. And Lavan answered him, if you regard me with chin, with favor, then please listen. I have observed through divination, through in Hebrew, nachash. That's the word for the serpent that Levon is saying I've observed through divination that Adonai has blessed me because of you now flip over to Leviticus 29 26 Leviticus 29 26 Leviticus, what? Leviticus 29 26 I'm sorry 19 26. Yeah. thank yeah. you I'm sorry yeah. <laughs> Leviticus nineteen twenty six. thank you yeah. Leviticus 19.26 Do not eat anything with blood and do not practice nachash, divination, or fortune-telling. You see, how close is Laban to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is practicing divination? How close is his daughters, Rachel and Leah, to God that in the very next chapter we're going to find that Rachel is going to be found guilty of stealing the household idols from Laban. Man, I don't know about you, but when I read these chapters, especially the past 15 chapters or so, I get discouraged and I get like in this funk sometimes when I'm reading these stories of these families and thinking, how can anything good come of this? And if you picture yourself being maybe back 2000 years ago, sitting in a synagogue and hearing these stories read from the Torah scroll, and maybe you're in the midst of this and you're Hearing this story and you're like going home from synagogue service that day, having heard that read and you're asking your parents, what good will come of this story? This is messy, right? This is so I don't understand how anything good can come of this. And We're going to see in a little while how this whole story here of the exiting from Laban's household is actually a prophetic picture of that hope that is to come. And it says, Laban answered, if you regard me with favor, and I've observed through Nachash that Adonai has blessed me on account of you. Verse 28. So name your wages. I will pay them. Yaakov replied, you know how faithfully I have served you and how your livestock have prospered under my care. The few you had before me, I came and have increased substantially. And Adonai has blessed you wherever I went. But now, will I provide for my own household? Remember, uh, Jacob went into Laban's household with zero wealth to his name, didn't he? He left a very wealthy household with Isaac, but he was on the run. He was a refugee. He was fleeing. And he gets here, and in 14 short years, he has blessed this man greatly. But he's in a state of exile still. But he's blessing the places to, to where he is exiled. And he says in verse 30, The few you had before I came have increased substantially. Adonai has blessed you wherever I went. But now, when will I provide for my own household? Laban said, What should I give you? And Jacob says, Nothing. Just do this one thing for me. Once more, I will pasture your flock and take care of it. I will also go through the flock and pick out every speckled, spotted brown sheep and every speckled or spotted goat. These and their offspring will be my wages. And I will let my integrity stand as a witness against me in the future. When you come to look over the animals constituting, constituting my wages, sorry, every goat that isn't speckled or spotted and every sheep that isn't brown will count as stolen by me. And Laban replied, as you have said, let it be. Now let's go real quick to Genesis 31 verses 10 through 12. So just the next chapter over. Where did, where did Jacob get this dream? Where did Jacob get this idea? He says in verse 10, chapter 31, verse 10, that when the animals were mating, I had a dream. I looked up and there in front of me, the male goats, uh, the male goats, which mated with the females were streaked, speckled and mottled. Then in the dream, the angel of Elohim said to me, Yaakov, and I replied, he named me. He continued, raise your eyes now and look, all the male goats mating with the females are streaked, speckled and mottled. For I have seen everything Levon has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Wait, is it the angel of the Lord or is it the God of Bethel or is it both? Where you anointed a standing stone with oil. Where you vowed your vow to me. Now get up and get out of this land and return to the land where you were born. So where did he get this idea of saying, wait, I need to, I need to claim these particular sheep and goats. He got it from God. So God is revealing something to him that is and going to happen in the natural world. Do you catch that? He was given like a, 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 like a dream into the natural world of something that is happening right now or about to begin happening. And he's saying, hey, it's kind of like placing a bet or, or picking lottery numbers. It's like if God were like, hey, you know, Howard, I want you to go in and pick these lottery numbers at the gas station or whatever. Because I think it's kind of like that. God was saying, look, these sheep right here that are patterned like this, they're about to multiply and, and, and start mating like crazy. And you need to claim these ones if you want to regain that wealth. So that day, verse 35, Levan removed the male goats that were streaked or spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled or spotted. This guy is just a a real deceiver, isn't he? Everyone with white on it, and all the brown sheep turned them over to his sons. And he put three days' distance between himself and Yaakov. And Yaakov fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So, verse 37. Yaakov took fresh-cut branches from poplar, which in Hebrew would be livnei lach, which is like, it means it's the same root as lavan, actually, livnei. It means a white tree. And he took almond, which almond, the Hebrew word for almond is luz, which means to be like crooked or twisted. Maybe it's like twisted branches. And they took plane trees, which uh, plain in Hebrew is armon which is, means to be naked. It comes from actually the book of Genesis when it says that they were in the garden and they were arum, aram, but the serpent was arum, crafty. That's that same word. So he's taking these three trees and he made white streaks on them by peeling off the bark. Then he set the rods he had peeled upright in the watering troughs. Let me grab one of my trees here. So he's taking these trees and he's peeling off the bark and he's making these, you know, he's making these patterns with them. Don't get focused on the pattern, but rather get focused on the fact that the bark is the skin of the tree, of the plant. And what's inside that plant is what he's after, okay? What he's after. And it says he put them in the watering troughs so that the animals would see them. It doesn't, that's, see them is not a good translation. Rather, it says in the Hebrew, he put them alpane in front of them, Okay? This is really presumptuous. This translation is not good. It's not so that they would see them, but rather he put them in the watering troughs al panay, in front of them. So so, um, when they come to drink, since they breed when they are coming to drink and the animals mated before or in front of the rods and gave birth to streaked, speckled, or spotted young. Yaakov divided the lambs and had the animals mate with the streaked and the brown and the flock of Laban. So now he's doing some selective breeding here. And he also kept his own livestock separate and did not have them mixed with Laban's flocks. Whenever the hardier animals came into heat, Yaakov would set up the rods and the watering trough again. So the animals, basically again, here's a bad translation, before them, alpene, in front of them. And they would conceive in front of them. But he didn't set up the rods in front of the weaker animals. Thus, the more feeble were Laban's and the stronger's were Yaakov. So we got three types of trees and I was kind of perplexed by this because I'm thinking, you know, biologically speaking, looking at something is not going to change the genetic makeup of offspring. Yeah. That seems anatomically impossible. And that's because it's due, in fact, to just a bad translation. But rather what he's doing, and, and um, there's a website, Answers in Genesis. Have you guys ever heard of Answers in Genesis? They do a great job. Let me show you. Um, they, they do a great job talking about poplar trees almond trees and the plane trees and they actually went through some uh, some some uh, botanical research papers that were done independent of scripture. They were just done by, by people that were botanists and they found some of the medicinal qualities of these three trees and so Answers in Genesis compiled these into this article and showed that what Jacob was doing was actually brilliant. That these three trees, when looked at and researched for instance, uh, like the poplar trees, they um, uh, during mating season, they can reduce weight loss and increase in reproductive rates. Poplar supplementation increased u production in sheep uh, by 20 and 30%. Um, here's another one. The sweet almond is a very effective, at uh, helps uh, kidney and bladder health. Um, also helps reduce these painful urinary tract infections. Bitter almond is also useful for these ailments, It's also useful uh, in difficulty in pain in the urinary tract, inflammation, hard, hardness of the uterus. Um, and then there's um, all these other things here. It talks about, uh, I just actually had that one. Yemenite Jews, for instance, this is from another scholar the article that, that Answers in Genesis had. Yemenite Jews used almonds externally to treat hemorrhages and internally to treat kidney stones, spleen, sore throat, and cough. Traditional medicine among the Jews of Iraq makes extensive use of the almond trees and its products to treat eye disease dysentery earaches and to relieve birth pains and to increase the output of mother's milk isn't that interesting so these three trees have a high level and these are just some of the things i just pulled off of their website there's many more that they list on there the medicinal qualities of these three trees that jacob is using and why is he peeling the bark back because he knows that that Those qualities and those chemical compounds are in these trees. If I put them in the water and make sort of like this tea, this tincture for these animals to drink over and over, it's going to strengthen the reproductive organs of these ewes, of these female animals. So that they will be be very fertile and they'll be very strong. So it's very, very intelligent what he's doing. Or it could just be that God is miraculously providing... Um, and, and, you know, through natural means, he's miraculously providing this. But I kind of like getting into that, that uh, the natural means as well a little bit. And it says, whenever the hardier animals, oh, there's a story about the plane tree. If you want this article, let me know. So whenever the hardier animals came into heat, Yaakov would set up the rods in the watering troughs so that the animals would see them and conceive in front of them. Verse 42. But he didn't set up the rods in front of the weaker animals, and thus the more feeble were Labans, and the stronger were Yaakovs. In this way, the man, Yaakov, became, in the Hebrew, it's me'od, me'od, great and great. And he had large flocks, along with male and female servants, camels and donkeys. So there we see it. The wealth has been restored, has it not? And that wealth is being generated almost out of thin air from the place of exile where he's been sent to. And, and remember that. But some lessons I pulled from Genesis chapter 30 are this, that God is clearly bigger than your male, your moral failings and vices, isn't he? And All that that reverberates into your family, any of your moral failings or your vices that have affected your family. Guess what? God is bigger and he's victorious. If you allow him to be, if you've been recreated in Messiah, you are a new creation in him. And that does not define you or identify you or hold power over you any longer. He's bigger than that. Lesson number two that I pulled. Well, actually, let me read this here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2 says. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. For we are God's poyama, which is like literally means like a tapestry or like something that's being sculpted, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for our way of life. Now notice he's saying, You know, it's not by works you are saved, but it is your salvation should produce works. Do you catch me? I always say that you are saved by grace and you're rewarded on by works and it should go in that order. Yes, we were created to do works of righteousness in God's word. But that's not what saves us. I used to think that coming into the Messianic movement, you know, that maybe... um, and maybe we fought less. <laughs> or maybe uh, there was less controversies over things like in other denominations of Christianity or something. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> there is more to fight over. And we are probably more intense people. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe coming into this, uh, that things would just be all hunky-dory and there wouldn't be a lot of... Um, You know, people with strongholds or vices or or addictions or, you know, the problem of sin, it, it has no bounds. It is a problem for Gabe Rutledge, who has to grapple with sin day in and day out. And it is a problem with you. And doing works does not make us immune to that. It might thwart that off to a certain extent. But we need God's grace every single day and his mercy every single morning, don't we? And the messianic movement is replete with self-righteous people who think that, that through their works they've attained salvation. That's just simply not true. And if that's you today, I'm telling you, I'm going to remind you that that's not true. You are saved by the grace of God and do good works. And don't be discouraged when you encounter sin around you or in your life. When you come into this walk and you think, man, I should should be perfect by now. No, you shouldn't be. You're probably far from it, just like I am. But we are his workmanship, just like we see with the story of Jacob, right? He is God's workmanship. But notice here in the last portion of the chapter, it's like when Laban is talking to Jacob, how many times has God mentioned all of a sudden? Suddenly God comes in the scene. It's like, I know how God has blessed you. And I've seen, you know, wherever you do, God God is with you. And he's giving all this inadvertent praise to God because of Jacob. You see, Jacob is God's workmanship, just like we are. So another lesson I learned is sometimes a prerequisite to our own sorrow and repentance is a little taste of our own medicine. Laban was a corrupt deceiver, wasn't he? And Jacob, who is also named deceiver, one who supplants or one who deceives or grabs the heel, someone who kind of seizes an advantage when he when he finds one, opportunity, he's an opportunist, he, he brushes up against someone who is more so than he is. And he realizes, wait a second, he kind of see himself a reflection of that, doesn't he? And sometimes we need that in our lives. When we're dealing with pride, sometimes when we brush up against someone who's more prideful than we are. You're like, oh, do I look like that? I want to be humble. (laughs) Right? But sometimes the taste of our own medicine is good for us. It brings true sorrow and repentance. Another lesson. There are very prophetic elements to this story that reveal a larger redemptive plan. Turn with me to Jeremiah 30 real quick. Jeremiah 30. Yermiyahu. Jeremiah 30. We're going to see how God is so good despite the ungodliness of this generation. <laughs> Jeremiah 30, verse 1. This word came to Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, from Adonai. This is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. Write all the words I have spoken to you in a scroll. For the day is coming, says Adonai, when I will reverse the exile of my people Israel and Judah. I will cause them to return to the land I gave their ancestors, and they will take possession of it. Does that sound familiar, like Genesis chapter 30? These are the words Adonai spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Here is what Adonai says. We have heard a cry of terror, of fear, and not of peace. (coughs) Ask now and see. Can men give birth to children? Why then do I see all the men with their hands on their stomachs like women in labor? with every face turned pale. How dreadful that day will be. There has never been one like it. It's called a time of trouble for Jacob. But out of it, he will be saved. You see, Jacob in our story here is in a time of trouble, isn't he? And he needs saving from it. And God says in verse 8, Jeremiah 30, verse 8, On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke off your neck. I will snap your chains Foreigners will no longer enslave Jacob. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Who is that talking about? Yeshua. Don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant, says Adonai, or be alarmed, Israel, for I will return you from far away and your offspring from their country of exile. Jacob will again be quiet And at rest, and no one will make him afraid. Even the uh, psycho leader of uh, of, of, uh, Iran, who's developing this missile. No one, it says, will make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, says Adonai. I will finish off all the nations where I scatter you. However, I will not finish off, but will discipline only as you deserve. I will not completely destroy you. You see, as we continue through this story of the people of Israel and the descendants of Jacob, things don't get very very much, they don't don't perk up, do they? (laughs) The children of Israel fall into rebellion time and time again, and they're exiled multiple times through the story of Scripture. But God says through the prophet Jeremiah, there will be a final redemption from your exile. Not only that, but I will restore your wealth. And I will make my promises true once and for all. Not because of what you, Israel, have done, but because you've gone into the nations and you've seen the wickedness and the deception of the nations and you said, where is my God? These nations are so corrupt and ungodly, unfair and unjust, and they will cry out for salvation, just like we see Jacob do here in the household of Laban. They'll say, get me out of here. Take me back to my land. And when they come... They will bring with them the wealth of the nations. And we see that playing out in our day, don't we? Mm -hmm. Praise God. So there is hope. With this story, with all these crazy, dysfunctional family members, but also with yours as well. There is hope.